Welcome back to the Talking Taxman podcast. This is episode four. If you're new here, I've previously talked to my friends about the coronavirus pandemic and the government's response, uh, the situation in Myanmar, and most recently, uh, cryptocurrency. Today's will be on climate change reporting and carbon pricing. Enjoy. I have James with me, former university student that I got to know in the University of Bath. And today we're going to talk about something that he's quite passionate about and has developed a knowledge of uh, in the last half a year or so and that is climate change reporting so I, I'll let James introduce himself uh, James oh, thank you for that introduction today yeah um, so yeah my name's James and uh, yeah got to know Vinay very well at university when we were both on aerospace engineering um, so I, I finished that uh, last year and um, I, since then like Vinay says I've been a uh, cluing up on environmental reporting um which yeah like you say i think i think it's a pretty key um sort of tool in our our sort of fight against uh, this continuingly warming climate i guess one of the reasons that you've been so passionate about it is that as global companies become more and more large more and more powerful they almost have similar sort of power in in kind of the social aspect mm. as governments do and you kind of you kind of expect them to hold some of the responsibility with yeah, regards I- to um I- enacting that change right absolutely i mean you know and it's happening it is happening more with these larger companies we're starting to see that you know partly because there is more exposure i think in you know the media um and people are much more aware of this issue they are demanding a sort of higher level of you know clarity on where their products are coming from um and so we are like i say we are starting to see this with some of the larger companies um but it's you know the, the, to really tackle the issue i think we need to have it reach a situation where everything we do is almost sort of got an environmental impact sort of report with it so that you know because everything we do does have an impact yeah and and, and uh, i guess i guess reporting in in the in the financial accounts is is still in its infancy and it's probably not as yeah. widespread and uh as as we'd like and yeah, so, as, so, as as climate change probably dictates yeah so in in the uk at least it's only currently like companies listed on the london stock exchange and other you know huge huge companies that have to do even the sort of barest minimum of reporting and they have to sort of so what they'll have to report each year is a sort of overview of their whole company's greenhouse gas emissions um and so that will involve sort of the main six big greenhouse gases obviously co2 being the main one um but that's really only uh they only have to really look at their uh emissions that they are directly report uh responsible for so what what i why i'm sort of getting into this and I think it appeals to sort of the engineering side of things as well is that there's a lot of talk now about um, how we integrate this into things like supply chains and value chains and sort of securely passing the information up and down, you know, um, supply chains. Um, So, yeah, so I'm trying to expand that out to more businesses as well is going to be pretty essential so the, the current legislation for sustainability reporting would you be able to give like a very brief overview of what these large and listed companies are required to report on yeah so like i said the uk regulations they they follow this uh, standard called the greenhouse gas protocol which was really sort of pioneering in um this area of uh, emissions reporting um and it was developed partly alongside industry it wasn't sort of from one of the big standards agencies and it's and it's been seeing some quite widespread adoption and the main way they categorize your different emissions are you have three scopes scopes one two and three one is 
emissions from directly burning stuff in on your operate on your site so say like you've got a furnace or something or um you know if you think about your home it would be like your hob um if you've got a gas stove that's literally burning stuff and the emissions are coming straight out um scope two is uh emissions from electricity that you're purchasing or other energy sources that you're actually purchasing um so you know you're sort of consuming the energy but it's being shipped to you from somewhere and then scope three which i sort of touched on before is that really sort of key one which is the the ones outside your organization but uh, also due to your activities so things sort of like extracting raw materials in your supply chain or um, lifetime use of products and then the disposal at the end of it and so currently um, those big companies they have to legally they have to report their scope one and two emissions and some of their scope three and um, yeah the way the way they do that it's currently you can do it by a variety of means and it's all the reason it's quite flexible currently it does lead into problems which i guess we'll talk about later but um mm. it means that different companies can re use different methods depending on how much time and how much money they've got to do this so like you can either install a load of sensors and get really high accuracy you know direct data or you can use you know scientific sort of um activity data things so sort of like say if you drive your car you know an average car emits you know 100 grams right. of co2 per kilometer or whatever it is um and that's obviously less accurate but it even even it's a, it's amazing how much um insight you can get from even a little bit of data you mentioned those uh those three scopes so am i correct in saying that as you go through those scopes in order emissions get harder to to measure so would you yeah. say scope three is much harder to to measure scope three emissions are much harder to measure than say scope scope one and scope two yeah i mean scope one and two if you've got it depends who you're buying your energy from or your electricity from but they could be you know fairly accurate um but yeah scope three is definitely harder but if you think about scope three every, your scope three emissions are someone else's scope one and two emissions so it's really about you know into interacting with your supply chain which you know a lot of companies i don't think you know they there's always this sort of there's a focus on obviously getting the product and paying for it but um there's less a kind of you know where's this coming from you know, what what methods are you actually using and some yeah. of that's due to competitiveness i guess and, you know you don't want to give too much information away um you have got to yes take responsibility for your own scope one and two first because without that then you can't pass on that information to other people I was going to just touch on on what you said that if you're looking at emissions through your supply chain then your scope 3 emissions are going to be someone else's scope 1 and scope 2 so is there any effect of double counting these emissions like so yeah. does that affect mechanisms yeah so that's um the green that was a sort of thing that was been developed in more recent years so greenhouse gas protocol didn't touch on it too much but um there's a new ISO, or fairly new ISO standard that came out a couple of years ago that is a bit more rigorous with the, the double counting. So with things like leasing um, assets, it's quite important to make sure that, you know, you, it, it doesn't, it's, doesn't have to be overly complicated. Like you said, it's just making sure that you talk to whoever you're, you know, leasing from saying, right, you know, that transport, am I counting that or are you counting that? And then it's just making sure that, yeah, you, you actually assign it to the right place. Yeah, and I guess there you can immediately see how costs can rack up. Yeah. Um, I mean, having those teams that liaise with all all companies mm. in, in the supply chain. People don't, you know, you don't really want to have to 
put too much effort into this, which I think is why there's a lot of um, it's getting a lot of attention because I think there's a lot of opportunities still for making this process a whole lot more efficient than it is. Because currently the the way it's, I mean, the, obviously there's going to be people who are, have much more developed tools, but the tools that are sort of more freely available for, for just say a company who's just saying like, right, I want to start up and do this on my own and not pay a huge consultancy to do it. You know, you're basically dealing with Excel spreadsheets and, um, you know, putting in data yourself. So it's still, there's still a lot of opportunity for creating tools which, um, you know, can, can facilitate the process. And like you say, make it secure because that double counting thing, it's, you know, an issue. But if you're not, you know, it's not the end of the world if you're just doing it for your own benefit. But if then you're tying it into an emissions trading scheme and there's potentially a lot of money wrapped in, up into this and, you know, uh, misrepresenting your country's reported emissions, for you know, then it becomes a lot more of an, uh, an important issue. So, so kind of just going away from companies for a second. Mm -hmm. Why is it important for people like me and you, individuals, why is it important for us that, that companies embrace sustainability reporting? Well, I think it's, um, it, gives, it ultimately gives more power to consumers. Because you know, not everyone particularly cares about where their things come from, but there is, I think, a growing sort of trend to more people want to, you know, with the fair trade movement um, and things like that. You know, people really do want to know that they're not almost indirectly causing harm and yeah so currently you know if you want to make a difference as an individual you're really sort of you can your sphere of influence is you know your little area around you and the people you interact with so you know you can sort of maybe plant a few trees or um you know cut back on your own consumption but it, uh, you're still limited by sort of access to services and the information that then is given to you by those service providers and those those you know those are ultimately the companies so it's really on if, if we you know if we have this sort of unwritten agreement between consumers and companies that you accept you know you, you can only take the services that are given to you it almost the onus i think has to be on the, the service providers for whatever that is to to do their due diligence and today the the largest companies their supply chains go on endlessly don't they and mm -hmm. that sort of it almost becomes an infinite task to track down emissions, work out who's responsible for them, work out who's going to be mm -hmm. reporting them. It, ju it just seems like a monumental task. And if there's not specific tools in place to, mm -hmm. to quantify them and measure them, then it almost feels like there's no way out. Yeah. I mean, like I say, the, there's sort of that, that I think what, what we sort of what led into that, you know, we were talking about consumers and that there's that sort of element, which is, you know, carbon labeling and, each product you buy or each transaction you do has a you know assigned carbon amount to it that is i think almost two steps in the future the first step and sort of what we were touching on before is you know just companies reporting their emissions for the year and saying right this is what we do um that is a whole lot easier and yes still does take a lot of um information collecting but not nearly as much as trying to assign emissions to each individual product which I think Tesco in like 2012-ish um, or something like that promised that they would have, you know, CO2 labels and all their products and they had to just give it, give up a couple of years down the line because it is a huge task. Um, so, yeah, I think, yeah, there's sort of several limiting sort of limit things that are holding us back currently. And yeah, tools is definitely one of them. The reporting standards definitely need mm. to develop more. Um, they're not perfect, but they will, they will keep changing. But then I think the final thing is a sort of... It, for doing this because um, i mean as, as a 
as a company, there are lots of benefits that you can get, you know, just from doing this, you get a more detailed look at your supply chain. So there's efficiencies, whether there's efficiencies to be made there. If you are already thinking about the environment, it make it gives you that insight to most efficiently spend your money. So you're not, you know, changing your, your, all your lighting to LEDs when that's like less than 1% of your emissions or something. And you could be spending that money better elsewhere. You know, we're seeing fuel prices rise, which is a big thing. Um, even if governments don't regulate businesses and charge them for their emissions, we're seeing now that prices of, as resources are becoming scarcer, fuel prices are going up. We're seeing costs more and more closely linking to carbon intensive activities. So there is almost this sort of, you know, linking of the two and insulate yourself against, you know, things like future pandemics. And if we were to look at the benefits to the globe, mm-hmm. bar the, the obvious ones, what, what kind of things would you mention? So, I mean, there's, there's, there's the obvious benefits to the, to the environment, like you're saying, that, you know, this information enables you to cut your emissions most effectively. So we will reduce CO2 emissions, which will be the most effective thing we can do to curb climate change. But then there's other things as well. This could sort of really be good for other sort of social issues as in sort of, you know, more transparency in supply chains you know, is, a, is a big thing. Uh, we're seeing, you know, with the, the Uyghur cotton in China, you know, a lot of companies were like, uh, we don't know where our cotton comes from. And I think, you know, Nestle have been caught up in all this as well with you know, where they source their cocoa from. So, you know, I think report, if we can, if, if there's a sort of um, more of a shifting in perception, sort of will to make this more standard practice, then I think there's a lot of other sort of social benefits that could come from it as well, aside from the obvious environmental ones. Because, you know, one thing, well, one thing that this does lead on to is sort of which we've touched on is putting a price on carbon, which uh, in a sort of capitalist society is pretty key to, I think, tackling this. McKinsey did some research into um, current reporting standards, and I think it's a couple of years old now, but they interviewed investors as well as company spokespersons. And three of the main things that they found out about the problem with current standards is that there's very little comparability between standards, which obviously mm-hmm. makes it hard for regulators to to assess how um, how companies are are working towards the, their environmental goals. Um, as we've discussed before, it's it's costly, it's time intensive, and it kind mm-hmm. of already puts smaller companies on the back foot if they yeah. have not got the capital to to invest. And then lastly, and I think this is one of the things that you're kind of gearing towards um, is companies are unable to see the, the, the long-term merits of um, investing in a, in a research project to determine what their emissions are. So what are your thoughts on that? What, what do you think is the, is the largest problem? I think, like you say, probably one of the biggest, the biggest one I'd say is probably still that there's not those really tangible you know benefits to this which is making companies go yes we need to you know do this right away now it's gonna and and we are going to benefit from it ultimately um so part of that i think the way the way to solve that i think is partly going to be coming from the people in the companies not necessarily just the managers and directors but you know employees talking to their line manager or and saying like you know can we do something towards this um you know are are we just putting recycling bins out or are we actually measuring our impact um because i think younger people as well definitely we're sort of there's that sort of almost more tangible feeling of this is really going to cost us in the future 
and so it's, it's funny we're seeing the more sort of as forward looking and i say that not as in you know innovative or whatever but forward looking is in how they have to plan for the sort of financial future um so those sort of companies like insurance companies and things who really have to think and pension schemes who have to think about long-term economic benefits they are some of the sort of almost leaders in in assessing their climate risks um which is what this really is it's sort of seeing how at risk you are to to you know fluctuations in in the climate um i think with there was some insurance group did the study and it's been something since 1980 there's been something like a fourfold increase in the number of losses each year from you know extreme weather events so for these companies it's not just a sort of thing to appease the pr team or whatever it, it is a real sort of it does cost them if they don't take action on this um so i think you know so, yeah drive from employees i think is definitely going to be a big thing um and then you like you said like i've been saying sort of more easy, easily accessible tools because there are these standards which do help with the other issue you mentioned which is incomparability but they're still quite quite lengthy and um you have to do it does take it does take a bit of work to you know to have a, a fair something to, with a fair degree of accuracy so why why can't there just be a standard that fits all companies fits all sizes probably a stupid question but i guess it'd be good to cover yeah so i mean there's there's two sort of main standards like, like i mentioned before the greenhouse gas protocol is really the sort of standard but within these standards then there's another sort of layer of what what are they being used for um so while there aren't that many standards there's a lot of different use cases for it which then change what sort of information you are reporting and how you're reporting it you know within that framework um which then i think leads to sort of that that difference in what different companies are reporting so some um the sort of voluntary organizations like uh, the cdp which also sort of helps cities and things sort of report their climate impact uh wwf have got things carbon trust have got other ones and each of them has got a slightly different aim which then means the companies go into looking at the standards and constructing their inventory and report with a slightly different aim so i think that 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 is possibly um part of it and then like you're saying it's just you know different businesses have we've got you know no no two businesses are the same and it's not just a case of you know you could, you've got necessarily all the data you need or um you know you if you if say one company's measuring their the miles their car drive cars drive whereas another company is measuring the amount of fuel they're using i mean it's a bit unrealistic they're probably be doing both but like say that was the case you know then you'd have to have a different model and you'd have a different level of accuracy and you'd have to you'd end up with a slightly different report so there's no sort of one size fits all and that does that these standards do have to account for that which does lead to issues what do you think the reason is that regulators haven't applied a blanket to all companies needing to report on their mm. environmental impact do you think it is just down to um, resources available to the larger companies to so. to engage in those sorts of activities i mean it would be a a monumental task like we've been saying and you know not just to, for companies to report it but to have to have an auditing agency that can go around and check every single company is following these standards to the letter i mean it it would be huge so i mean i think that i think it's coming um and we are still sort of in the fairly early days of this so we've like i say we've got sort of big emitters and um listed companies currently and i think it will have to expand i'd like to you know i'd like that to have almost been built into the rules at the start because currently it says right you know these are the companies that will report 
and there was no long-term mechanism for expanding the scope of reporting which i think was a bit of an oversight it, you know it maybe would have been better to say right in five years time then we lower the threshold for your revenue sort of um that means you're included in the scheme um so i think it will come and obviously a lot of companies are now taking this on, on their own so um and as i think as more people collect it as well that's another thing it will become easier you know it's already becoming easier and easier than it was 10 years ago when tesco tried it just because there's so much more data because people have been doing it off their own backs and so i think it will probably be <laughs> that that the regulation will come when it sort of almost reached that tipping point where politicians you know know there is enough will and enough ease for people to do it without kicking up too much of a fuss you have your sustainability reporting and that kind of leads into carbon pricing how would you describe the link between climate change reporting and that how that links into carbon pricing mechanisms yeah so i mean carbon pricing is one of the main tools that's being employed on sort of national levels to tackle climate change because if, if you think about fossil fuels and you know extracting any resource for, you know you've got this natural capital which then you're you know extracting and once it's gone it's um you know unless you replace it it's it's pretty much gone and you've and, and there isn't currently or if you don't have any carbon pricing that's almost not recognized more but i think in financial accounting correct you have to account for depreciation of assets so we're currently sort of almost just ignoring that whole sort of thing. So that's what carbon pricing aims to do, either through trading schemes or um, carbon taxes or carbon credits and things like the EU emissions trading scheme. They almost came before these sort of widespread um, carbon reporting rules. So that, again, we're sort of, we're coming at it from, from multiple directions and it's all sort of beginning to coalesce into a coherent sort of thing. So I'm going to I'm going to use this opportunity to flex my A-level economics. So it's good to explain that the emission of CO2 uh, is a negative externality. It has a larger social cost than it does a private cost. And the whole point is that this externality arises because companies are failing to fully internalize that cost. So there's two main ways in which we can alleviate this. So there's a cap and trade system. Um, if you could just give a brief overview on the cap and trade system. Yeah. So um, what you do is you, you say, right, if you want to, big industries first, obviously we can't do everyone, but um, if you want to emit one ton of carbon dioxide, you need to buy an allowance to do that. Um, and so we, we set, at the, whoever the governing body is, at the start of each reporting cycle, we set a certain allowance, we, we create a certain amount of these allowances and put them up for auction and people bid and, and um, then through that bidding process a sort of carbon price appears and then companies that emit more than their allowances that run out they either have to buy allowances from companies which uh, cut their emissions or emitted less than they they thought they would so have got spare carbon allowances or they have to pay a hefty fine and that fine should hopefully it you know drive them towards the first option um so that then the companies which did implement you know uh, emissions reduction strategies they get rewarded for their efforts um and the companies that don't get penalized so it kind of it comes at it from from two fronts and then you have the carbon tax uh, system which is where the where the cap and trade system is a quantity based um mechanism you have carbon tax which is a pricing mechanism so you almost set the price of of carbon and it's up to the companies whether they'd pass on those costs, um, whether they'd absorb them. Are there any countries that are currently administering a carbon tax? 
But one of the big first ones was in Australia. It was a very short-lived experiment, sadly, but uh, for I think for about two years it, it existed and you know, it covered quite a lot of the economy. And that was the only time, I think, in that sort of whole 20-year period they'd seen any drop in their emissions, which had been rising up to then. So it, arguably it did have a pretty substantial effect, but then, you know, politics happened and it got kicked out. Um, and I think Canada's got uh, carbon taxes and they because they obviously export a lot of oil they tax that and then give their citizens tax breaks and other things which was a big failing of the Australian system they didn't fully sort of integrate it into the tax system um, but what we're seeing now in Europe um, which has got one of the oldest emissions trading so cap and trade systems is we're st seeing countries actually implement sort of almost uh, carbon taxes alongside this to pick up where the emissions trading scheme is sort of failing so well, here in the UK, we've got um, what actually does qualify as a carbon tax. It's built into the, our, our new UK emissions trading scheme, which follows the EU1 closely, which is a carbon floor price. Um, so the price in the auctions can't drop below a certain limit. Um, so it's, it's all, almost sort of a combining the two. And um, I think we're seeing, uh, I think Sweden's got some, um, they're popping up all over the place now. So, if, you know, to, to, to pick up where the emissions trading scheme has miss things because it's had a bit of a i mean as with any new wide-ranging hugely ambitious project it has had a few um ups and downs <laughs> at the start where i think you know two years after its inception the price had crashed to something like 0.2 cents or something and they had to just reset it my initial um reaction to the two possible solutions mm. was that if cap and trade is a quantity-based uh, method and you're literally setting the cap on emissions yeah. surely that would be the best option i mean if you you have carbon taxes you're setting a price on carbon however mm. it might not necessarily lead to lower emissions yeah. which i think is is very fair and i think in in an ideal world it 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 would um but the sort of it all depends how they're implemented there is you know these are just systems it and like political systems or like any system it's not a case that there is a perfect one it's all in the application of it so with a cap and trade system i think sort of a few things off the top of my head which would be key to its success um well firstly you know tight reporting standards but aside from that um you'd need a fairly tight allowance sort of cap uh, on the total number of allowances so that you do actually reduce your emissions which then has got a decreasing mechanism built into it so that your emissions go down you've got to be careful how you allocate those allowances in the yeah. first place because that that was a big thing with the eu scheme it was countries could say how many allowances they wanted and so there was this huge influx and obviously it was just too many you know it wasn't ever going to reduce emissions because there were just too many allowances out there and then you know you've got to be careful about how long you let people hold on to them so can companies just keep accruing these credits for years and years and years and then you know dump them into the market uh, you know, and the trading system, you know, how secure is this? You know, I don't know anything about financial trading, but, you know, it's got to be pretty, I'm sure it's got to be secure. Mm. Whereas a carbon tax, like you say, I mean, I say, I, I'm, I don't particularly have a favor. I think they both have merits. So a carbon tax, you know, the advantages are its simplicity. You don't have this whole sort of trading system going on. And similarly to how if you mess up the number of allowances in a cap and trade system, if you don't set the carbon tax yeah. price right you won't see any benefits but if you have a very flexible mechanism built into it so that you 
setter you know use uh, the best knowledge that you have available to set the price and then be ready to adjust it pretty rapidly to to the changing demands then you know you can almost chase the emissions you want with your price so it, you can also get those benefits and almost then you have a bit more control than a cap and trade system because then you're not just um you know relying the on the market side yep. yeah but you know also then it's another tax which is very hard to sell and it doesn't give it doesn't necessarily give you that reward to companies to which to sort of make those emissions cuts like a cap and trade system you don't get that positive sort of thing from selling your credits it's only that you you're a bit more competitive than your neighbor because they also have to pay a carbon tax but that's sort of a bit harder to i guess see as a benefit and also you, yeah then you do have to be very careful about how you implement it in your wider tax system so i think you know do you then reduce income tax? they've both got merits but it's really all yeah down to the political will whether it gets sort of hijacked by big businesses a little bit and then how it's implemented just going back to the, the emissions trading system one mm -hmm. thing that kind of baffled me was that the regulator or the the governing body sets the cap and then kind of distributes that cap into to allowances right how would they have allocated it because if you think about it the only basis upon which they could allocate is current emissions however if the whole point of the exercise is to encourage companies to reduce their emissions then you're almost you're rewarding high emitters right yeah yeah so how, how would that have been done with a sort of if you're if you're just one nation you wouldn't do any allocating at all particularly you just leave it up to the you'd, you'd just say it's an auction and you'd have different rounds of auctioning and companies would then have to you know allocate it themselves by how much they're willing to pay for it but um that with with a more complicated one with multiple nations like the eu system then you have to say right we're going to allocate each country a certain amount of credits and then you can have your own auctions or you know it does get a bit more complicated but ultimately you should be letting the market decide um and because then like you say you know you can then almost the companies that uh, you know need know they need to to buy these they just have to pay more for them um and if they don't they get a hefty fine so it's that fine that is really another crucial point so they've all it's not you know 100 percent just let the market decide it's all gonna sort itself out you do have to you know they have to very carefully think about you know how much they set these things are there rules for who can pay that fine are you allowed to get government loans to cover your fines because that has happened as well um but it can be really really rewarding so like tesla um they make i think seven percent of their revenue um from selling carbon credits that you know they they get they i think they do get a, an allocation because they're an automaker or something i'm not too clued up on it but i know they make a huge amount of money from selling these to the other car makers who aren't meeting their emissions targets and you know now they're they're reaping the benefits their you know their share price we've all seen what happened to that obviously uk is out of the eu now what are the key differences between the the UK planned ETS uh, emissions trading system and mm -hmm. the the the, 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 yeah, yeah, and, the UK and the, UK and the one. EU one? Yeah. I mean, not much. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, if you there was enough going on with Brexit that I'm pr I'm pretty certain they just uh, it as closely as could, which is a good thing because it means then it's easier to harmonise it later. I think I did see that they are looking for more ambitious targets though. Yeah, than the EU. Yeah, the, we've got a slightly yeah um more ambitious thing because we are sort of ahead of the curve in europe in terms of emissions reductions and the eu bloc still got to sort of deal with the sort of poland and other sort of carbon uh, coal intensive countries um 
so yeah slightly different numbers but the system is pretty similar and we talked a little bit about a potential venture that you're that, you, that you're looking to start what's that going to entail so it's um really hitting on a point which I mentioned earlier, which is encouraging people in the workforce, younger people, but anyone who's keen to make a difference in climate change, perhaps doesn't know the best way to do it is making changes in their you know, daily life, but still sort of wanting to make more of a difference and sort of give, give a, a few sort of basic tools and pointers like we've sort of talked to today on how to um, take that to work and sort of almost encourage your company to uh you know take take action as well firstly through just measuring your impact so that like i said there's not any greenwashing and you're not just sort of you know, doing this for the wrong reasons if people take this to work then you're increasing your sphere of influence to affect positive change like enormously so i think that that's that's the main thing i mean it's still sort of in its infancy but trying to yeah get get people on board and give them the tools so that you go to your company and say right we can really just get an overview even a really rough overview with these few simple sort of measurements looking at our finances and things and from there you know we can probably make it work in terms of cost effectiveness um and if they if they also know the benefits the longer term benefits and you know to companies to doing this then hopefully it'll get more of the sort of top dogs on board and yeah, I, could, yeah, I guess it, it just gets the ball rolling, doesn't it? Even if it is a mm -hmm. rough estimate at the start, just kind of starting that process. Yeah, I mean, it really doesn't have to. There's a, a huge amount, like I say, in the past five, ten years, a huge amount of data has become publicly available on, you know, if you want to buy a kilo of steel, how much from which country and how it's transported, you can get a pretty, pretty accurate estimate of your carbon. So even if you know roughly that, like, okay, it's you know 70 percent of our emissions come from our materials and 20 percent come from transport and five percent come from i don't know our building then you know to look at your supply chain first um and you can probably say you know cut costs by finding a more efficient supply chain than say i don't know you know getting solar panels on your roof for your electricity which if that's less you know so even that really basic information without any extra measurement just looking at the data that's available online can can make a huge difference um so i think it's encouraging people to take that first step is the aim of this and suppose your initiatives off the ground someone approaches you they're really unsure about how to actually go about talking to someone senior at their firm uh, about making that change what kind of advice would you give i mean i think number one is keep that passion um you know if you care about this issue and you're it's obviously hard depends on your company but if you know you, you have a good relationship with your with your, your your manager or whatever then um i'm sure they'll be happy to hear, hear hear you so keep that passion and then think about how your business is really being affected so there's no sort of one size fits all solution so it's sort of thinking about um you know do you do you import a lot of mid things from elsewhere do you just buy and sell products do you have a lot of sort of cars driving around think about sort of look at look at your business and think right you know where your emissions are coming from and and sort of think then how that can tie into cost savings that's always a good thing so you know everyone wants to save save money and then go on go on um websites like uh cdp greenhouse gas protocol you know even the uk's reporting standards and even if it's you know you only read the sort of overviews or the um uh the summary 
papers rather than the full reports just have a you know have a look and know the things that you've got that you would need to to find out because if you can make it seem like it's an easy task then that's that's another um and you know go in and say like this isn't going to cost us too much money or take too much time we can do a sort of rough thing with you know just looking at how much fuel we buy or um you know the weight of certain stuff that we buy because they'll probably already know that and uh, if you just make you know make it seem approachable and say look we're not trying to rock the boat because oh you know that's the big thing don't don't make it seem like you're trying to upend the company or take over from from the shop floor but yeah uh, that would probably be my advice but i said we're um, looking to sort of and hear from people as well once uh once we've got enough sort of basic information to put a, put a page together and we can get people on board sort of have them share their experiences and, and also say what works and what doesn't because you know everyone's going to run into problems it sounds so interesting what you're doing and i really look forward to it getting off the ground i did i did want to end with um a scare story and i know you yeah. told you told me about this uh uh, a couple of weeks ago but i think it would be interesting and kind of a uh, a, a kind of good way to, to wrap up um <laughs> if you could t talk to me a little bit about this wet bowl temperature ah uh, yeah so i mean this was just something that i heard which yeah, i think we all kind of know the urgency of dealing with uh the climate crisis but this this really hit home there was so there's this um phenomena called the wet bulb temperature which is fun if you have two if you imagine it's going to get a bit sciencey here but if you have um two thermometers and one of them you just leave as is and one of them you get a bit of wet cloth or a wet paper towel and you wrap it around the bulb you imagine it's like you're sweating you know when you sweat your the water evaporates and it cools you down that thermometer with um the wet cloth on it that water will evaporate take energy out of the thermometer and drop the temperature a little bit depending on how humid the air is, um, will, it'll dictate how much water evaporates and so consequentially how much the thermometer drops. So if you're still with me, um, on, a very hot, on a very humid day, the air's already quite moist, so not much water can evaporate, so you won't get much of a temperature drop. Um, so the wet bulb temperature is almost the same as the dry temperature. Now this, it, uh, does that make sense so far? So far, I, th I think I'm with you, yeah. Okay. And as an engineer, I feel like I should be with you. So yeah. So um, this this process is really fundamental to humans and our survival. I mean, it would be interesting to hear from a biologist really more about this because I don't know much. But um, yeah, it, it dictates how much heat we can lose essentially through sweating. Um, so if you've got a really high wet bulb temperature, um, then you can't sweat so much. And ultimately, if it hits, I think thirty five degrees, um, you just you're you're pretty much guaranteed to die of heat stroke if you don't get in the shade. It, it's like a biological certainty that you know you your body physically at that point can't lose any heat and you will get a heat stroke and die and um what's scary is we're already you know currently in some parts of india and africa in the summer wet bulb temperatures are already hitting 34 degrees um and so any future heat heat waves will make it literally inhospitable um outdoors in some of these places and we're potentially looking at a further two and a half degrees of warming, which could mean that it's not just during the heat waves. It's these regions are just flat out inhospitable to human life, um, which is a pretty terrifying thought because it would, I think the region, the areas effective, affected could cover something like 3 billion people or something like that. It's, it's a staggering amount of the world's population that are going to get 
yeah, really, really screwed over by this. Um, and it's happening so fast. Fundamentally, I think reporting is trying to do is give us that kind of climate first lens that we've we've got used to a kind of safety first lens of doing business where you know if you want to do anything now you know you have to go through health and safety because we've seen it work we've seen over the past hundred years you know the, the top life expectancy hasn't changed that much people sort of ultimately die between sort of 80 and 90 but life expectancy has risen from 40 because people are dying less in their 20s people are dying less at work of car accidents of you know bad food so we've we've seen that if you everything you do has a kind of safety first look at it it gets results and i think what we need is that kind of climate first lens as well um, and when you do that it you life carries on but hopefully you reduce your impact and we don't um yeah displace half the world's population well james i think that's a really good place to end um thank you very much for your time and the thing about this topic is that it's so far reaching uh, and it's quite a dynamic fast fast moving topic that i'd hope to have you on again at some point uh, as, as you clue yourself up on on other things but for now thank you very much for joining no thank you thank you for having me on today